This is the third lecture on the teacher's retreat at Springbrook, 16th of October 2010, by Stephen Batchelor. Now today I want to go into um, this passage in the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, which is Martima 26, and it starts, I considered this Dharma I have reached is deep and so on. Do you have that? I think I flagged it last time, yesterday. Page 15, top of page 15. And then that will go straight into the turning the wheel of Dharma text. Now, yesterday we uh, looked at the centrality in the Buddha's teaching of uh, Paticca Samuppada, conditioned arising, dependent origination, and how he identifies the Dharma with conditioned arising, and he identifies himself with that Dharma. Now, the passage I want to read now is um, from the sutta called The Noble Quest. It's the 26th middle-length discourse. And it's um, a rather unusual text in that the Buddha actually talks about himself. He gives, admittedly, a rather sketchy outline of his leaving home, of his engaging in uh, certain forms of meditation practice, Specifically, the two, um, well, what are called the the, uh, the seventh and the eighth jhanas, which he masters, and then says, "These don't work. This is not taking me anywhere. This doesn't resolve my issue." Is Jeff? And then the next thing we know, um, he doesn't mention sitting beneath a tree or anything like that. That's not stated we then find him describing um, his uh, awakening. And um, it's a brief passage. And one, I think, that, uh, again, shows very clearly where his emphasis lies. Just maybe um, a brief note on method again. Um, There are, of course, other accounts the Buddha makes of his awakening, or at least the texts um, ascribed to him. And a famous one that people often cite is the one in which he remembers all of his past lives, and so forth and so on. But again, even if you read that text, and I think it's in margin of 38, you see that the principle is actually the same. The principle is that of conditioned arising. Whether he says, I see how beings um, are born according to their deeds. Again, condition that then gives rise to an effect, except now presented in the framework of multiple lifetimes. I think it's probably true to say that um, over time, religious doctrines tend to get longer rather than shorter. (laughs) They tend to expand. And therefore, as another kind of rule of thumb, I would give more priority to a shorter account of something than a longer account of something. And we'll in fact come back to this um, later with another very clear example of the uh, doctrine of the 12 links of dependent origination, which is the official version, and it is the version that is most widely found throughout the canon. But the canon also has two shorter versions, one of ten links and one of about six. And since since the six-link version is found in the Sutta Nipata, which is by consensus agreed to be the earliest stratum of the canon, I think we can give priority to that one and we can see, I think, by a study of the other versions, how what started as a fairly practical analysis of human conflict develops into a metaphysical theory of how people get born and reborn, the 12-link model. 
Um, so I'm not going to get into that now, but that's just another example of the same point. And what it also shows, of course, is that um, the canon is clearly something that evolved and developed before it was, um, technically the word is, closed. And the closure of the canon probably occurred when it was written down. But in that interim, it appears that certain developments and elaborations um, continued to happen until it reached that point of closure. So this version of the awakening is uh, probably the most concise version and thereby I would give it somewhat more authority than, more, than the longer and more elaborate ones. Let's read out the whole text. The Buddha is speaking and he says, I considered this. This Dhamma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise. Uh, the word is, again, Vedana, felt by the wise, sensed. But people love their place, they delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground, the this conditioned, Conditioned arising, which is paticca samupada. And also hard to see this ground, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all bases, the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nibbana. And then he adds, were I to teach the Dhamma and others were not to understand me, that would be tiring and vexing for me. We'll come back to that point. <laughs> That's an important point. <laughs> now, um, again, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this passage. Um, and you, if you've listened to any of my podcasts or audio tapes, you'll have probably heard me talk about it endlessly. But uh, for me, this is a very uh, crucial and foundational text. Because as I said at the beginning... Um, the whole of Buddhist tradition in all of its complex variety over two and a half thousand years would not have happened had there not been this awakening of a man called Siddhartha Gautama in India about 400 and something BC. So clearly if we're going to really get to the ground floor of this edifice called Buddhism we're going to have to be very clear, or at least be able to take a reasoned and authoritative stand on what it is that constitutes this awakening. Now, what is surprising is that most forms of Buddhism have departed quite significantly from what is stated here. And um, I often run a little thought experiment, I'm not going to do it here, in which I read out um, pass passages in which the Buddha speaks of his awakening and I leave out what it is that he's awoken to. I leave that as X. And then I ask the audience, well, what is X? And the usual stream, string of answers are emptiness, selflessness, nibbana, um, absolute truth nature of mind, whatever it might be. There's a tendency to single out one particular thing um, and to understand the Buddha's awakening as a kind of an understanding, a deep insight into that thing, a knowledge of it, uh, a grasp of something uh, which is uh, profoundly true. Now, what is uh, striking about this particular passage is there's no word in it um, that has its root in the Sanskrit word nya, to know. He doesn't, he's not speaking here of coming to know something. That's the first point I think we have to make. The second point is there's no word that would correspond here to the English word truth. In other words, this is not a knowing of something true. 
That's, at least that's not how he describes it. Instead, he describes this experience as a kind of existential shift of perspective. Now, how does he describe that? He uses two terms. He uses the word alaya, which you have in your text, and um, tanna, or tanang, it's in the accusative there. Both words mean, in common dictionary definition, kind of the same thing. They mean a foundation, a ground, a place, a support. But the Buddha seems to be giving them quite distinctive meanings here. Though I think it's also probably the case um, that he's, he, he, he's, he's engaging in a kind of word play. Uh, this is another feature uh, of the Buddha's teaching, is that he takes terms that are familiar and he gives them a new twist. For example, the word ground, tanna, in, um, in the classic philosophy of the Upanishads, uh, this would be the Sanskrit word adhisthana, which means foundation or ground, and it refers to Brahman, God, uh, the unconditioned ground of all life, of all being. What the Buddha does is he takes this term ground and then describes this ground as something very un-Brahma-like, namely conditioned arising, the flow of events themselves that arise and pass away. The conditioned world is what he's somehow awoken to, that he's come to see. And his ability to see that has only been possible because he has let go, he's relinquished attachment to a sense of his place, his alaya. Um, alaya is again used later in Buddhism as, as alaya vijnana, the foundation consciousness or the storehouse consciousness. It's the same word. Same word also in him alaya, him alaya, the basis of the snow a word we actually then use in English. But here the Buddha is using this word alaya um, to refer to how we become invested in and attached to a particular place. Now, he doesn't say this, but I think we can elaborate or understand this um, in considering what the range of things are that we become attached to or obsessed about or identified with as my place. It could, in the most basic sense, be one's um, attachment to one's physical place, one's country, one's town, one's village. You know, I am an Australian. And when Australia does well at the Olympics, we instinctively stand up and go, yeah. In other words, even though we are nice, we consider ourselves to be detached Buddhist-type people, I think these investments in place um, run very, very deep. Um, and of course, you can never, as it were, um, uh, abandon that place. You cannot change the place you were born. You cannot not uh, have lived in a particular town for 20 years. The problem, therefore, doesn't lie with the fact of having a place. That's unavoidable. The problem, as the Buddha says, is delighting and reveling in that place. And so we can think of place as, an, as a national identity, a regional identity. We can also think of it as a, a social identity my place in society, my position in the, the pecking order of um, the hierarchies within my office or within my family. You know, I am the, the patriarch or I am the managing director or I am the headmaster. We usually are attached to places that carry some uh, worth, perceived worth. And, and, and we feel somehow... Um, 
um, fulfilled in that way. We feel we have something here that secures something that we can hold on to. The whole business with our delighting and reveling in place is because it gives us a kind of sanctuary from a world that is profoundly unstable. And as the Buddha will come on quite soon to explain, place is a kind of refuge against sickness, aging and death. The insecurity of our life is somehow um, resolved by feeling that we are secure in our place. Now, of course, if we push this idea further, it becomes ever more um, internalized. Um, we might have seen through the uh, fiction of, let's say, securing ourselves in, being, in having a national identity. We don't find that actually satisfying, just to feel proud about being uh, a Bosnian or something. And we retreat, I think, increasingly inward into regarding our place more in terms of a set of beliefs. So we become a Buddhist or a Christian or a Muslim whatever it might be. And that then becomes our identity. That becomes our place. And we get very um, you know, uncomfortable when people challenge that or criticize it or make fun of it. Uh, we feel that something within ourselves, something at the core of ourselves, is being undermined or threatened. Um, of course, we can also read this um, in terms of our political position, that we're a conservative or a liberal or a communist or whatever. Again, another set of beliefs. And again, there's nothing wrong in the beliefs. The problem is how we utilize or relate to those beliefs in terms of being a sanctuary against suffering, impermanence, and change. Well, psychologically, we, uh, we retreat to a conviction in our, our, um, our, our ego identity, a, a very um, a strong sense of me. That gives us a sense of place too, a sense of position. Admittedly a rather subjective one, but in a sense that's the kind of the refuge of last resort if we are to um, base our lives on attaching ourselves, or base our identity on attaching ourselves to a particular place or position. Now the Buddha says people who delight and revel in their place, no sorry, he says it is hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground, idam tanna, to see this ground. In other words, the problem with identifying with a place, and I, of any of those kinds, is that it has a kind of obscuring function. It blinds us. It kind of is like a veil. It, 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 it shuts us down. Um, we become overly immersed in this identity we have and in doing so become uh, incapable of acknowledging the actual ground of our lives. It, it, it's a kind of alienation would be the word we might use today. We are alienated and we are alienated from the ground of our existence. Idantanang, this ground the this conditioned conditioned arising. It's worth pointing out also that the word tanna, ground, is the same word in satipatthana. That um, uh, satipatthana um, is, is sometimes translated as, as the foundations of mindfulness, but actually that's incorrect. The word uh, patana is, a ver is, is being used as, in, uh, as a verb. It's more like a, a grounding or a found, or a, 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 an establishing of mindfulness rather than a foundation of mindfulness. I would argue it might even, if we want to keep this etymological link, 
it could be we could take this to mean a grounding of mindfulness, a grounding of mindfulness in the body, the feelings, mental states, and then Dhamma, all things. And I don't think it's accidental that the Buddha uses this word here and then in his key meditation practice. If you look in Bhikkhu Bodhi and Bhikkhu Nyanamoli's translation in the Wisdom edition of this, um, they don't say this at all. People are going crazy. Aren't they? Um, the word Bhikkhu Bodhi uses, uh, and Nyanamoli, um, is, it is it is hard for people who love, delight and revel in worldliness, is how he translates Alina. And it is very hard to see this truth now, for, for a long time, I'd taken that, I'd, I'd trusted that translation, and I thought, well, truth must be such a, you know, Four Noble Truths, this truth. Uh, and I was a bit surprised. I hadn't actually come across the Buddha speaking about the truth. But when I checked it with the Pali, it didn't say that at all. Mm-hmm. Now, th- this is unfortunate. Because, I mean, I was rather disappointed and relieved at the same time. Mm-hmm. Disappointed in that I'd trusted this translation, only to find out that the word that I'd assumed they were translating turned out to be something else. Tanisara, Ajahn Tanisara translates it as this state, which is a bit better, but again, its state is again rather static. I don't quite understand why they don't say ground. Possibly because they don't want to give the sense that Buddhism has anything to do with the kind of ground of being. But that, I think, is precisely what the Buddha's doing. He's actually uh, subverting the understanding of the culture of his time, which did believe in a ground of being called Brahman or Atman, and turning that ground from something you know, solid and stable and unconditioned into something highly temporary, fluid, and conditioned. Uh, the, the, in the Pali, it, it says, Ida Pachayata Paticha Samupada. Ida Pachayata, uh, I've translated it here as the this conditioned, but actually that's slightly incorrect. It should be the this conditionality would be more correct. Uh, Tanisaro translates it as this that conditionality. Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as specific conditionality. But what, is, um, what it's getting at, and again, it's very difficult to communicate this in English, the this is in, I think, the... I forget what the name of the actual uh, 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 grammatical form is, but it means something like by this conditioned. The by this conditioned. What the Buddha's doing here is referring to the specific phenomena of life. This, that, these, those. It's what's called a deictic pronoun. It points to specific things. In other words, he's turning our attention away from an awakening to some kind of transcendental ground, some absolute truth. And he's pointing to an awakening to the specificity of how particular things generate particular effects. He's concerned very much with the phenomenal world. And I think this again is borne out very clearly in the Satipatthana Sutta, where when the Buddha describes meditation, he, he, he gives a lot of emphasis to highly specific details of experience. The monk knows when he breathes out long, he's breathing out long. When he breathes in short, he's breathing in short. The actual breath-by-breath attention. And then he goes into the full awareness, as we saw a bit yesterday. A monk is fully aware when he walks forward, when he walks back, when he carries his bowl, when he wears his robe. And he even goes as far as saying, when he pisses and shits. Now that must have been deeply shocking at the time. I think even today, um, it's... It's a bit, a bit, a bit of a jolt. 
here's a guy who's awake to such mundane things as uh, as defecating, as having a crap, or peeing. This is a very radical shift. Uh, rather than talking about performing yogic exercises that lead us introspectively into an awareness of our innermost spiritual being that is identical to God, which was the classic Brahmanic approach, the Buddha's literally turned that on its head and encourages um, his uh, followers to meditate on the specifics of actual life, things that are conditioned by this and that, There's no room here whatsoever for some kind of uh, transcendental truth. But we have to be careful. Um, As we were saying yesterday, um, it's not, the the, the awakening uh, is not, cannot uh, simply be understood in terms of what it is that one has woken up to, but equally has to take into consideration the perspective from which one has woken up to that. And this um, leads the Buddha to talk about another aspect of this ground, because remember there's two aspects. He said it's hard for people who love delight and revel in their place to see this ground, conditioned arising. And also hard to see this ground, the stilling of all formations, da-da-da-da-da, stopping Nibbana. So his um, awakening to this ground of life is not just a kind of intellectual wake-up, oh my God, everything's changing, but it is experienced from a place in which you are no longer conditioned by greed, hatred and delusion and that is Nibbana so there are two things going on here or we could say that this ground has both a subjective and an objective pole that might be one way of putting it but again I don't want to suggest that there's a kind of a dualistic thing happening it's a single experience a seamless experience that we can speak of as having an aspect that is more subjective and an aspect that is more objective, but without making a split between the two. So uh, the Buddha's awakening, if we um, take this passage as our basis, is one in which he's reached a point where he's no longer conditioned by craving, that he's experienced a kind of stopping, nibbana, the greed, hatred, delusion, his self-interest, craving, attachment, all of these things that are, as it were, the, the mechanisms that drive us to delight and revel in our place, that's fallen away. And in that falling away, he has come to experience his life from a new perspective. He's come to experience life from another perspective. And again, as I, said, as I mentioned yesterday, I think Paticca Samupada is in a way a kind of rather a Buddhist jargon term for life itself. And, you know, the, this condition. I mean, life is about um, a, a sequence of events that unfold both inwardly and outwardly in our world. And as we pay attention to them, we see how one thing leads to another, one thing leads to another. When these sets of conditions are in place, then a particular effect will emerge. And how each effect, each consequence, becomes the precondition for the next thing that unfolds. It's endlessly unfolding. And what is strange about that is why he would call it a ground. It sounds rather groundless. It's perhaps a groundless ground. It's a ground on which you have no real solid place to stand. 
It's not a ground in the conventional sense. Uh, it's a ground that's constantly slipping away. But, not only, but at the same time as it slips away, it's also renewing itself. But it's always in motion, it's always moving. Whether we think of that in terms of our inner processes, whether we think of that in terms of, of uh, our, our situation at work, it's always in a process of flux, it's always in a pro- process of movement. So what the Buddha, I think, is calling for implicitly here is how do I ground myself in a shifting, groundless world? And that, I think, is arguably the key to his way of life. And this is also um, suggested in another key term, the idea of, of sotapati, entering the stream. A stream, too, is not a solid ground. A stream is, again, flowing, fluid, unfolding, endlessly shifting. And that's how he describes the path. The Eightfold Path is a stream. It's a flow. And so perhaps what it's it's calling for is another way of um, grounding oneself in the world. A way that is not one that's constantly seeking some solid place that I can hold on to, which is the problem of being attached or delighting and reveling in a place. Because the problem is, there is actually nothing permanent in that place. It's going to shift, it's going to break down, it's going to collapse. So to hold on to it is basically going to fail. It's not going to provide you with the support or with the security that you invest in. It's going to break down, or you're going to break down, one way or the other. Perhaps if we, use, if we extend this metaphor, um, it's perhaps more like learning how to uh, nego- learning how to swim, learning how to uh, you think of the image of the water boatman insect. I don't know if we have those in Australia, but these insects that dart around on the surface of the water, or like a fish. Um, again, we come back to another metaphor that. I haven't touched on yet, but we might later on. The metaphor of a raft. A raft is something that enables us to, uh, uh, to, 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 to have a base that won't sink on a moving body of water. All of these metaphors, I think, are pointing in the same direction. And then the Buddha concludes... Were I to teach the Dharma and others were not to understand me, that would be tiring and vexing for me. Now why does he say that? Well, if we go to the verse that follows, I think we, we, we get a key idea. He says, why should I now reveal what I reached with difficulty? This Dharma is not easily awoken to by those in thrall to desire and hate. Those died by desire, in other words, died in the sense of died by colour or whatever covered by a mass of darkness will not see what goes against the stream subtle, deep hard to see and fine so the Buddha describes what he's woken to as something that goes against the stream now you might already be noticing wait a minute, I thought this was about entering the stream the same word in Pali, sota The Buddha describes what he's um, experiencing as like entering a stream. And then he says in the next breath, that goes against the stream. Now the stream that it goes against is sometimes called Mara Sota, the demonic stream, the stream of the devil. And the stream of the devil is basically um, the, the stream of, 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 of compulsions, of habits, of instincts, of drives, of desires, of fears. And the image here, therefore, is that you enter a stream that, in a sense, is going against that flood. Now, what is the flood that it goes against? I think on a, on a more universal level, in other words, in terms of how this would be meaningful to people living in any time or place, it has to do primarily with the, 
biological, psychological, social conditionings that impel us uh, uh, to behave in a certain way. On a more specific note, I think it refers to the stream of religious ideas that were current at his time. In other words, the assumptions people had about what it meant to be awake, to be enlightened, to be wise. And the, the target that the Buddha, in a sense, is primarily focused on is Brahmanic orthodoxy, Vedanta, the Upanishads which talks very much of um, a practice that uh, does not attend to the specifics of the world, but rather withdraws from that into an introspective contemplation of the true self, uh, or God. So it goes against that stream. Now, in some ways, I think that is still very much an issue for us today. We are, of course, probably not former Brahmins, by definition. But nonetheless, we do come from a theistic culture that um, does posit a kind of ultimate ground, God, and um, leads us to expect that any spiritual or religious teaching will somehow uh, conform to that expectation to that idea. And we mentioned yesterday how, how, you know, how there seems to be such a strong um, uh, tendency, even amongst people who have been doing this sort of Buddhist practice for many years, uh, to be drawn into a kind of theistic, devotional approach in which words like God or the, in the Almas tradition they talk about, the, the beloved, or something like, like that. Um, it's a very deep human longing. And um, what the Buddha seems to be quite clear about here is that for him that is not the way. Uh, that he's, in a sense, turned the thing on its head. He's going against the stream and turning attention away from transcendental absolutes or ultimate truths to the phenomenal world as it unfolds from moment to moment. Now, what uh, then he says uh, in the last bit, he says, on thinking this over, monks, my mind inclined to inaction, not to teaching the Dhamma. So, I, again, to what extent this is a rhetorical emphasis? In other words, later Buddhist tradition saying, trying to sort of elevate the status of the Buddha's enlightenment to such a degree that nobody could possibly understand it except him. That might be part of the rhetorical function of this text. But I think what it's pointing to um, is that what he awoke to was something so much at odds with the tradition of his time, on the one hand, and, I think perhaps more importantly, so at odds with our human intuitions of where truth and value and meaning lie. Not in the changing, dukkha-ridden, conditioned world, but in something unconditioned. And this, I think, is, again, it's indicative of how difficult it is for us to accept this, because as soon as we come across a text that says there is an unconditioned and unborn and if there were no, yeah, there is there is monks and unborn and unbrought to being and unmade and unconditioned. If there were no unborn, unbrought to being, unmade, unconditioned, no escape would be discerned from what is born, brought to being, etc. But there is an unborn. Da, da, da. <coughs> this passage is, is, has got an enormous magnetic attraction because it seems to introduce the very thing that's being um, that there's being. Uh, dispensed with here. It seems to reintroduce the hope that, oh well, behind all of this conditioned world, there is something unconditioned. I like that. Let's go for that. Now I think we can read that passage in a very different way, and again, I think the Buddha is doing a similar kind of of word play as he is in this passage. He's using his word tana, ground, and then turning it into something very unground-like. He's using the word unconditioned, 
And then when he explains what it is, it's always unconditioned by something. I think the way to respond to this idea of, but isn't there an unconditioned? You have to say, unconditioned by what? When the Buddha presents his understanding of the unconditioned, he says, this month is the unconditioned. Um, This is on page 35. On page 35, uh, the Buddha is at Savati and he says, Monks, I will teach you the unconditioned and the path leading to the unconditioned. And what, Monks, is the unconditioned? The destruction of greed, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This is called the unconditioned. It's not what you expect. And what, Monks, is the path leading to the unconditioned? And you might expect, you know, to sort of go into the deepest core of your true nature and the Buddha says mindfulness directed to the body right so again turning the attention right into the concrete and the immediate and the specific your breath, your body, your feelings I mean the text continues with mindfulness directed to the feelings and right through the, the 37 limbs of awakening So what the Buddha's done is he's taken a term unconditioned which is used as a noun to refer to the ground of being, God, who is unconditioned. Brahman is unconditioned. The unmoved mover in Aristotle. That which is the ground of everything else but for which there is no cause or condition for itself. That is the classic definition of God. Uh, This is, of course, an impersonal definition, but it's common both to uh, Brahmanism uh, and also to Christian theology. So the Buddha takes this word unconditioned and then subverts it. And he says unconditioned means unconditioned by greed, unconditioned by hatred, unconditioned by confusion. He's made it into a process rather than into... Uh, a term that refers to some kind of transcendental truth. He's also turned it into something that you can do. And this is what we're going to come to uh, next, is how do you, uh, what do you need to do in order that you are no longer conditioned by greed and hatred and delusion? And having achieved uh, an experience of not being conditioned by those things, then what does that lead to next? And it's here that we find the framework of the Four Noble Truths. The Third Noble Truth, Nibbana, is also defined in exactly the same way as the destruction of greed and hatred and delusion. And all of this has to be seen both as a a process language, something that you arrive at, but not as an end in itself, but rather as a, uh, as a context or a framework within which other possibilities open up. But before we go on to that, before we go on to the first sermon, which we're not going to get to in any detail today, it's probably worth having a quick look at um, what follows in the Arya Pariyasa Sutta, the discourse on the noble quest from which this passage I've just explained is drawn. So go back to page 15. Um, I haven't included this text but you have um, uh, uh, but the account of of how the Buddha overcomes his inclining to inaction is quite curious. He says, on thinking this over my mind inclined to inaction not to teaching the Dhamma. And in... uh, in, in a, a tradition, but though not actually stated in the text, it said that the Buddha spent several weeks just sitting beneath the Bodhi tree, um, just kind of hanging out, just chilling. And then something rather strange happens. A, a god appears. Brahma appears. Brahma Sahampati appears. Um, now sudden, suddenly, um, and this is strange for a modern reader, Um, especially having just read a passage like this, which is rather sort of no-nonsense, factual and analytical. Mm -hmm. The next thing we know, Brahma Sahampati descends from the heaven 
and uh, uh, it says as, 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 as quickly as a, as a strong man would flex his arm, boing, Brahma Sahampati is there. And Brahma Sahampati then starts talking to the Buddha. And, you know, I don't have the actual text, but basically what it boils down to is, you know, okay, sunshine, there's some people out there who might understand what you're on about. That's right, yeah, that's right. There are some with little dust in their eyes and they would understand the Dhamma. Now, um, we've, we've shifted into basically mythic language. I personally don't believe that gods come down from the heaven and tell me what to do. Maybe you've had these experiences. Maybe some people do have visions of this nature. But I think in our modern world, that's, in, you know, that, that's not a very common experience. We would even perhaps argue that people who do have such visions are, you know, perhaps expressing themselves in a way that nowadays we would perhaps look for a more sort of psychological explanation. And this is the way I would look at it. And I would start asking myself, well, what does Brahma stand for? Why Brahma? Why not some other god? Well, Brahma... um, on the one hand, in a classical Indian thought, is understood as the creator of the world, as opposed to Vishnu who preserves it and Shiva who destroys it. I'm not sure that that understanding was already the case at the Buddha's time. But nonetheless, I think it's helpful. In other words, what if Brahma is the creator, then the appearance of Brahma we could understand as the first... Um, uh, um, as it were, manifestation of a creative impulse. Mm-hmm. Something is now ready to be created, to be born. The other aspect of Brahma uh, that I think is relevant, two, two other aspects of Brahma, one is that Brahma is said to be the lord of the world of form. This again is classical Indian cosmology. You have the realm of, of, of Kamadhatu, Rupyadhatu and Arupyadhatu, the realm of, of, of sensuality, which is, which is ruled by Mara, who's also a god, by the way, the realm of form, which is ruled by Brahma, and the world of no form, in which there is no ruler, I don't think. And these correspond, in a way, to uh, our sensual experience, um, our formless experience, in other words, where there is no content in experience, there's just pure spaciousness or whatever. But there's also this intermediate realm of form. Now, form here doesn't uh, refer to physical matter in that sense at all. That's covered in the world of sensuality. But the realm of form refers to what we might call the realm of ideas the realm of pure forms, somewhat like the platonic forms, and archetypal forms. And so Brahma is in a sense a kind of an archetype, uh, the emergence of a kind of vision, an idea, uh, uh, a concept of what could be realized in the world of, 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 of human beings. The other aspect of Brahma, though, which Buddhist tradition uh, continues, or especially in the Pali tradition, the idea that Brahma stands for love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, with the so-called Brahma Viharas, the abodes of Brahma. So Brahma is actually somehow co-opted by the Buddha. Uh, there are other passages also where the Buddha is very dismissive of, of Brahma, particularly Mahabrahma, which is equivalent almost to God. But Brahma Sahampati and these lower Brahmas are, um, are seen as positive things. Another term in which Brahma appears is Brahmacharya, Brahmacharya, which is usually translated as the holy life. The holy life has been led. It's the Brahmacharya. The, the Brahma-like life. So Brahma functions as quite an important symbol uh, within uh, early Buddhist discourse. But what it's pointing to, I think, is on the one hand, 
well, at least I would understand it as the as, as a mythical way of describing the inner processes that were at work in the Buddha's life at that point. In other words, his you know his his experience, as it were, uh, was was rather formless. It was a kind of perhaps you know he he rested in the fact of being. Uh, in Nibbana, completely freed from greed and hatred and so on, and rested in the, the bliss, as it were, of that. But at a certain point, he became aware that he was not just a solitary person uh, in the world, that there were others out there for whom he could feel love and compassion. There, were, there was a kind of duty or obligation to respond to that love and that compassion. There was a creative impulse emerging. But at the same time, all of this was still rather abstract. It was still within the context of a kind of ideal form. You know, ideally, I'd like to go and save the world. But in practice, how do you do it? And this, I think, was the dilemma the Buddha faced at this time, was... He's now no longer content just to incline to inaction. He now has been reminded by Brahma, or whatever that stands for, to go and do something, to act, to speak, to work. And at a certain point he gets up and he heads off for Varanasi, for Banaras. And the story is that that's where his five former companions in asceticism are currently living and he thinks well at least these guys perhaps will understand what I'm on about and then he sets off and he arrives then at the, the deer park in Isipatana which is now called Saranat and he begins teaching and tomorrow we're going to go through the first sermon I'd hope to have gotten onto this today I'm sorry I haven't but maybe I could, before we conclude, I'll just read it out. So this is what I heard. Uh, the text is called Turning the Wheel of Dharma, but actually that's a later, uh, in the, uh, the, the text uh, don't actually call it that in, in, the, uh, uh, in the earlier canon. It seems to be in a title that's been added later. But what it refers to, of course, is that it's at this point that the Buddha starts to teach, begins to reveal his understanding in the world uh, by setting forth the Dhamma. The setting forth the Dhamma as opposed to just experiencing it himself. This is what I heard. He was staying at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana. He addressed the group of five. One gone forth does not pursue two dead ends. Which two? Infatuation, which is vulgar, uncivilized and meaningless, and mortification, which is painful, uncivilized and meaningless. I have awoken to a middle path that does not lead to dead ends. It is a path that generates vision and awareness. It leads to tranquility, insight, awakening and release. It has eight branches, appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, concentrating. This is dukkha, this is suffering. Birth is painful, aging is painful, sickness is painful, death is painful. Encountering what is not dear is painful. Separation from what is dear is painful. Not getting what one wants is painful. This psychophysical condition, the five aggregates, is painful. This is craving. It is repetitive. It wallows in attachment and greed, obsessively indulging in this and that, craving for stimulation, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. This is cessation, the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving. 
the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. And this is the path, the path with eight branches, appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, concentrating. Such is suffering. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is craving. It can be let go of. It has been let go of. Such is cessation. It can be experienced. It has been experienced. Such is the path. It can be cultivated. It has been cultivated. So there arose in me illumination about things previously unknown. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the twelve aspects of these four noble truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision was clear in all these ways did I claim to have had such awakening. The freedom of my mind is unshakable. There will be no more repetitive existence. This is what he said. Inspired, the five delighted in his words. And while he was speaking, the dispassionate, stainless Dhamma eye arose in Kondanya, who said, whatever has started can stop, or whatever has arisen can cease. So that's what we're going to look at tomorrow. And again, I think it's worth uh, pointing out that he provides here an entirely unambiguous definition of awakening. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the twelve aspects of the Four Noble Truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in the world. As far as I'm concerned, that settles it. That's what enlightenment means. This is the conclusion of the first sermon. I don't think you can find a more authoritative text. I think it's also worth pointing out that he doesn't use the word full awakening when describing his insight under the Bodhi tree that we looked at. And my sense is that um, his awakening was only actually complete once he had articulated his first teaching of the four truths. In other words, when that experience had found uh, a concrete form in the world of others. Uh, and this, I think, is mirrors the doctrine of what are called the three kayas, the three bodies of the Buddha, which start with the Dharmakaya, which is the personal experience of the Buddha, then moves into the Sambhogakaya, which I think is very close to what's occurring in the episode with Brahma, with this archetypal or ideal of what it is that he is to do, and concludes with the Nimanakaya, or the embodied uh, presence of the Dharma in the concrete world of uh, society and history and other people. So in other words, the awakening is a process. It's not reducible to a single experience that is purely subjective. It has to extend from that deep primary intuition, in this case of dependent origination, of Nibbana, and then find form through its embodiment in words and acts. Um, it also mirrors the sequence of the Eightfold Path, which starts with right appropriate seeing, then thinking, then speaking, then acting. The same process is occurring there as well.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.